all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your leftist car podcast. My name is Bryant, and today we have Brandon and Zach here. Uh, Connor couldn't make it, but in his place we have a guest. It's uh, Joe Mayall. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Mayall? spot on. Thanks okay. for having me, everyone. <laughs> How's it going? Thanks for coming on. It's going yeah, good, yeah. Good. Happy to be here. So... Uh, we invited Joe on. Uh, I first heard him on the Turn Leftist podcast, uh, sort of a, a podcast we've collaborated with in the past, uh, talking about why we should nationalize the airlines. And I thought, oh, that that seems like right up our alley as far as our podcast is concerned. You know, we deal with uh, transportation more generally, not just car stuff. And then I found out that Joe was uh, also a member of Denver DSA. So uh, I hit him up and said, hey, you want to be on the podcast? And he said, yeah. So that's what we're doing now. So, uh, Joe, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, how you came to leftist politics and how you became interested in transportation and and uh, union efforts and all that? Yeah, definitely. Um, again, thanks for having me. As for my background and sort of uh, journey to become a leftist, I guess, is, um, you know, after college, I join the workforce. And I think like a lot of people, I slowly start realizing that, you know, the promises that capitalism made to my parents, my grandparents of work hard and you get this, uh, you know, high quality middle-class life um, weren't really going to materialize for me. So basically just, I'm kind of like that, that kid that always asks questions of like, why, why, why I, I uh, kind of brought that into my workplace and asked, you know, why is my salary this? Why are our profits that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it didn't take long before I... You were fired. <laughs> <laughs> I was fired from my most recent job, yes, for, um, how can I put it, uh, workplace confrontation of the treatment we were getting from management. But um, actually, ever since I got fired, I, I threw myself into writing full time. So now I get to be a uh, leftist writer, which is um, a pretty cool job. And if I can, uh, you know, make a living off of it, I'll, uh, I'll be super happy. I got fired. <laughs> As for the question of why I tend to focus on uh, transportation, um, one, I think, you know, I'm sure I know you guys talk about this a lot, but our, our transportation systems are one of the chief drivers of climate change, us killing the planet. Um, they are, in my opinion, a direct outgrowth of uh, capitalism um, in the for-profit model. And I also think it's a great place for um, leftists to win supporters. You know, you mentioned my article on nationalize the airlines. That is, you know, well, even when I talk to like, very staunch Republicans and right-wingers, like, because of the fact flying in the United States is terrible, like, when you say, like, oh, the reason it's so terrible and you have to pay $80 for a baggage fee is because of for-profit and we should basically just sort of run the airlines like we run public buses, 
you know, everyone is kind of like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because no one enjoys flying in this country because it's terrible. Um, yeah. I also think that works for public transportation, uh, the car industry. It's just a very, you know, we everyone does some form of tra- transportation every single day. And so it's just a lot more evident. And so I found it's a great way to kind of draw people towards uh, the leftist side. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah, some, something that everyone can agree on. That's For sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I have never met a single person who is like, oh, I love flying on American Airlines. Like, it's so <laughs> pleasant and cheap and affordable. <laughs> like, there's no one who thinks that because... Capitalism. I flew United recently and my knees still hurt. Yeah, right? Like, people forget. Remember a couple of years ago, United literally, like, beat the shit out of a guy and dragged him off an airplane? Like, that is... Oh, yeah. Like, that's how they treat you in a capitalist system. So I think it's very straightforward to say to, you know, the average person, like, hey, maybe we should do things differently. And they tend to agree with you. So... Um, that's why I really like. I was just on a, a flight where there was no consideration for any like size or anything. So you know, first class exists and exit rows exist. And meanwhile, I am just like with my back as flat against the seat as I can, and my knees digging into the seat in front of me. Yeah, it's miserable. For the record, I am a very tall man. <laughs> it's miserable. Hey, it's okay. They're gonna implement those half standing seats now, jeez. Oh, and so that your knees will be bent. You won't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> I thought they were doing like the staggered stacking seats so that you're basically sitting in each other's laps, sort of. Oh, God, I haven't seen that one. Is oh. that the one where like someone can like fart directly in your face? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, Zach, I can almost promise whatever you're imagining, it's worse. Yeah, I, I can't imagine anything worse than someone's ass directly in my face for several hours on a flight, but... <laughs> I'm sure they could find a way to make it even worse than that. Well, you might be shocked to realize how close exactly it really is. <laughs> uh, that's lovely. Well, before we get too far into uh, Joe's articles, uh, you know, normally we do a project car update at this point. Um, but I guess we'll ask Joe, uh, you know, what's sort of your automotive history like, or what's a, what's a good automotive story from uh from your past like what are you driving now or like what's some interesting cars that you've been driving in the past yeah definitely um to be totally honest with you and your listeners i'm probably the least uh car savvy person you've ever had on or let me rephrase i'm definitely the least car savvy person you've ever had on this podcast um i'm a pretty normal uh car consumer um Right now, I'm I'm driving a uh, a Ford Maverick that I bought uh, last year, which I have been told is a uh, a uh, coveted item in this uh, from these podcast hosts. Um, <laughs> it was a, a pretty wild experience uh, buying it. It's the first new car I ever bought. Let's see. So I've ha- I got it in March of 2022, and I had ordered it in uh, I believe August of 2021. And for listeners who might not be aware, like the Maverick was a, it's a new, like a compact pickup truck from Ford. And as I understand it, Ford didn't um, like fully convert factories. What they did was they said, okay, we're going to take, I don't know, the two of the factories that make uh, the F-150 
and temporarily convert them to make the Maverick and see how it sells. And we'll go from there. And so this was a terrible idea, which led to so many back orders. Like I got the very boilerplate uh, factory issue version of the truck and it took me six months. And, you know, I'm in all the uh, Maverick owner subreddits and stuff like that. And there are people who ordered in 2020 and they still haven't gotten their, their car. So very fortunate to, to have gotten it. Uh, the crazy part was when I went to pick it up, the dealer tried to buy it off of me as he was selling it to me so that he could put it back on the lot for like twice the price. Right. Cause I had, I had <laughs> bought it for the sticker price. So he couldn't like jack the price up on me, but he was like, negotiating with me as we were walking to the car that I had just bought. And it was one of the strangest. Did he offer you more than sticker price? He he didn't flat out come and say it, but he was like, we were walking by other trucks and he was like, oh, I had this guy sell the, the Maverick back to me for like $500 more than sticker price. And like, I'm reselling it, like very heavily implying. And as we got closer to the car, he like, was like, you know, a lot of people have been selling these back to us like before they even get in them. And I just needed a car. Like I had moved from <laughs> from Boston to Colorado. And so I like, I don't know, I kind of need a car to get around the city. So I was like, it. I didn't realize what was going on until I like got in the car and he gave up. But it was just the strangest experience because it felt like the guy was like trying to pull the car out of my hands that I would, had like just signed the paperwork for. So... I I often wonder like if he had come out and said like hey I'll give you I don't know 10k more than sticker price or whatever like would I have sold it to him fantastic question I'm not entirely sure but it was just such a bizarre experience I didn't fully understand what was going on <laughs> I would 100% do it I I would if for if for no other reason than the bragging rights of going <laughs> to a dealership buying a new car and then immediately getting handed like 10 grand just to go away <laughs> yeah it would have been pretty hard to say no if he had been like all right man here's the deal i'll give you like i don't know uh forty thousand dollars for this truck right now or something like that or feeling like you know that might have that might have uh piqued my interest but it was such a weird coded thing i often wonder if like his boss said like hey you gotta stop like trying to negotiate with people as you're as you're selling them cars so uh, yeah yeah I I like it's not a position I get to enjoy very often, but one of my favorite things in the world is when someone who, uh, when I have leverage over someone who is in a position of power over me. <laughs> so it, that little microcosm of that happening, it would be like, I don't know what the truck sells for or whatever, but like just to throw some round numbers, like if it's 20, if I paid 20, and he's like, actually, you know, we're, we're flipping them for like 30 same day. And I'm like, oh, cool. Then you won't mind giving me 28 for it because that's two grand in your pocket for doing literally nothing but stand there. And they'd be like, well, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, yeah, but you just told me how much you saw it selling it for. And you're waiting hours to do it. So why would I why would I go down? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Very rarely in uh, in life do we get. Do we get leverage over the the people in power? So um, I got leverage over a that. boss once, and it was one of the best feelings in the world. <laughs> I thought, they fired me two weeks later. <laughs> I was just gonna say I also <laughs> thought I had leverage over a boss, and I got fired. So funny how that oh, happened. I literally went, <laughs> I went into the owner's office and demanded my pay be doubled. 
<laughs> and they were like, we literally cannot do that. And I'm like, you better consider it. Because um, the only other person there that could do my job had got diagnosed with cancer and was on sick leave. And I ended up getting fired two weeks later for trying to coach my other coworkers. Be like, listen, this is the position they're in. Now is the time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to get the most basic, like, you know, workplace uh, collective bargaining, even on an informal level, gets you, gets you fired. Pretty, oh, pretty yeah. American, typical American workplace story. <laughs> yeah, they, they were open about the fact that they were firing me because I was discussing wages with coworkers. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I think that is legal to do and illegal to fire you for. Yeah. I forget if we talked about that at the time, but did you consider, you know, going to the state labor board or like lawsuit or uh, anything like that? This was like 15, 16 years ago where I was okay. constantly teetering on the verge of homelessness and just generally kind of a, a train wreck of a human being. So I did consider it, but uh, several people advised me that they could, I could probably get my job back, but the likelihood of me keeping my job on a six month plus like the reason I was, I was making absurd demands was because I was over the job. It was a, uh, because I was taking public transit. It was a two hour commute each way every day. Oh geez. So I, w I wasn't heartbroken about the loss of the job. Just like dumbfounded that they would be so stupid as to do it for an explicitly illegal reason. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, like, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for the feeling of power I had over my boss for that one week <laughs> where he was just sweating bullets. Man, when he called me into the office Friday morning and he, he offered me like $3 an hour more. And I looked him in the eye and said, OK, I'll let you know what I decide by the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was just like, no, you don't understand. This is our last offer. And I'm like, yeah, and I'll let you know by the end of the day. <laughs> I'm also curious, Joe, what was your uh, your first car that you owned? Ooh, let's see. Um, I had a Volvo S60 that, Ooh, nice. yeah, it was, um, my family bought it back in like 2006, seven, like somewhere around there. And my sister drove it for when she was in high school and then... Um, I got to use it when she went off to college and let's see, I, I ended up like basically the car, as the car got like, you know, more and more run down, my parents were like, yeah, you can just sort of have this. And it died on me right before I moved to uh, Colorado, which was a good thing. Cause I was contemplating like driving it across the country and it, it would never have worked. And so this was like 2021. Um, and this was another crazy story was I called some like random local, like, uh, probably it was probably like a chop shop dealer, like cars for cash or something like that. And the guy came to get it with a, with a, uh, like a flatbed. And I remember like standing next to my car and being like, oh, yeah, it's this one. And he just hands me an envelope of cash. Like, never asks for proof of ownership. <laughs> never asks for, like, any sort of identification. And I, I don't think it was worth very much. I think he gave me, like, four or 500 bucks or something. Um, scrapped it. And I was just, I remember walking away and being like, oh, like, I could have just, like, that could have just been some random car. Like, he, that guy has yeah. no idea if I own that car or not. Like, 
I could have just like stood next to a BMW and been like, oh yeah, this is my car. I'll give it to you for like five grand or something like that. At another wild experience. And now I'm kind of realizing like, I don't know if I've like had a normal car selling buying experience yet. I'm only, I guess I've had uh, only those two, but I feel like those are, those are pretty obscure for, uh, for standard experiences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I haven't had either one of those experiences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course i've never bought a car brand new from a dealership anyways but uh, that's another story yeah <laughs> well i think we might do uh a couple quick um car updates for the rest of us here before we get into uh talking about some of your articles joe so i forget uh <laughs> i always forget uh do you guys remember what order we're supposed to go in this week or do you have a anyone want to go first I never really feel like it matters that much. I'll, I'll okay. go first just because I, I'm easy. I, I didn't do anything. Okay. Um, I've nice. been working on so much other stuff. I haven't had much time. Like, really, all I did was was some. Uh, God, I can't remember. I oh, I, I started working on my '69 again, doing some like sheet metal stuff. But I only had a few hours to spare, so like, I just started hammering out like some a body panel for it. That it's not finished and certainly not welded in yet. So, okay, that's that's it. Just I, I hit some sheet metal with a hammer and. Uh, uh, been graced with uh, two weeks of nothing breaking down. So nice, that's good. Hey, yeah, <laughs> I can't remember. I, I I did realize that the carburetor on the Cutlass, like probably the idle circuit, is a little gummed up or something because it doesn't like to idle, but it will drive fine. So I'm gonna put together a new carburetor for that because I don't know enough about Edelbrocks to like really want to clean it out that much. So yeah, I've, I've started putting together a Holly for my Cutlass, and that's it. There you go. Cool. Yeah. I'm easy this week. That is easy. All right. Well, I have been a little bit busy. I think last time we recorded, I was talking about helping fix my friend's car um, that had bent Mm -hmm. suspension from a wreck. Uh, So he went and got a a new strut and, um, you know, brought it over and I had some time in the evening and I'm like, yeah, this should only take, you know, a couple hours or something. And, uh, you know, first I told him to get like the whole strut assembly so it would go quicker. And he just got the strut without the spring or the top hat. So uh, I had to go and get, you know, the loaner uh, spring compressor from the auto parts store and um, switch that over. And then you didn't want to just zip uh, the top hat bolt off with an impact and and let it fly. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't feeling that lucky. I mean, it's the rear strut, so. It's probably under a little less tension than the front strut, but still, I, I wanted to, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was under a little bit of compression. Uh, all right, fair enough. And then this is on a 2001 Camry. And so every other car that I've worked on that has struts, the strut top hat bolts in from the top inside the trunk. Mm-hmm. Or on my MR2, it's in the engine bay, but, you know, basically the trunk. Uh, On the Camry, I guess they decided to change things around to make more interior room or make a bigger trunk or something. I'm not really sure. But the mount for the top of the strut is, like, right under the parcel shelf. So, like, right behind the the rear seat. And so I had to take uh, out the entire rear seat and um, a good portion of the parcel shelf and other like interior body work to get to that mounting spot. And so that took 
probably the better part of an hour, just that. And then um, <laughs> I'm not used to working on cars with uh, anti-lock brakes and there's like a cable there going to that. So that got in the way. And then I, I don't know, like most, <laughs> most other cars I've worked on, you can take the strut off without taking the brakes off, but I had to take the caliper off to get the, to the strut bolts on the bottom. So that was a big chore. Um, but you know, eventually got it out. Uh, the old strut, just as I suspected was banana shaped. So I'll, I'll see if I can post a picture of that in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and then, uh, let's see on my own car. I've been, I, I talked a little bit about trying to find wheels for my, um, Sabaru, um, for the winter tires. And, you know, first some guy was, I think he was like selling three of them for $300. And I'm like, oh, I could probably get better than that. And then I went and got a single, uh, or excuse me, I, I saw another guy that was selling three of them for like 120. And I'm like, oh, great. Awesome. I messaged him and, and I'm like, hey, uh, let me just get another one from the junkyard. So I have four and I'll, you know, find a time to come and pick those up from you. He's like, awesome, cool. Just let me know. And so I go to the junkyard, pick one up. It was like 45 bucks. And then I get, you know, message him. And then, you know, radio silence, he ghosts me. So I'm like, well, fuck, I got to find another three. And then eventually I look around a little bit more and I find another guy that's selling four of them for 75 bucks. And I'm like, hey, great deal. But they've been painted black with spray paint. And it looks really bad. It's like starting to peel on a couple of them. I'm like, okay, well, I can just get like some paint thinner or some acetone and like scrub that off. It shouldn't be too hard, which it was that that is true for the first two uh, that I started scrubbing. Uh, It just came off, you know, real quick, just like half hour of scrubbing. The third one, they actually did their work and like put primer on it and stuff. And that shit is not coming off like. I'm having a real pain. It's been a real pain in the ass. Um, So I went to the hardware store and I got like paint stripper in a can, like this stuff that like foams up and whatever. Oh yeah. And I, and I sprayed that on last night and it, and it definitely softened it up a little bit. Um, Didn't get everything off. uh, So I sprayed it again and left it. So I'll, uh, I'll keep going on that. And, um, and then I'm going to order some new tires and uh, you know, have, have my summer set and my winter set, uh, which is the the whole plan with that. So, yeah, that's that's it for my cars. I did uh, I did also go to a car show in Colorado Springs yesterday with some family members there, and uh, some, some I saw some cool cars. Um, there was a really clean FDRX7, Ooh. and there was I think what won best in show was sixty uh, something Ford Econoline pickup truck oh hell yeah yeah i i figured you might like that um yeah you you said that knowing what i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) and it like had the door handles shaved and all kinds of cool custom stuff on it so i'll post some pictures of that up too but yeah there's some other cool stuff i i chatted with the guy that had a like a 97 civic hatchback that he put a what is it like a k k20 uh motor in from an acura and I'm like, oh, man, these, you know, I was looking at these uh, a little while ago and everyone wants like 10K for them. And he's like, yeah, actually, I uh, I traded it like a clapped out old Subaru for this thing. And then I got the donor vehicle for like 1500 bucks. 
I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm so jealous right now. <laughs> but yeah, there's some other cool stuff there. I'll, I'll post up all those pictures. But yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um, Zach, uh, how are you doing with your cars? Oh, not too bad. I uh, got the Subaru finally running, I think. It's nice. It's been going for about a week now and no problems. So I think I got all of the problems solved. It uh, Sweet. ended up being mainly just bad grounding and I needed to do a timing job on it and got those done. And now it's, yeah, running like a champ. I, when I was doing my full STI swap, I ended up poking a hole in the AC condenser. Uh, so I have a new AC condenser in there, but I still need to go have it charged. I tried to do it myself, but I just couldn't quite get it right. I don't know what the issue was, but, uh, it's like 80 bucks to have it charged at the brakes plus. So I think I'm just going to take it into them and have them do it. I'm sick of dealing with AC stuff. It's a pain in the ass. I keep. Yeah. I was going to do it myself for my car, but I might just take it into the shop. Yeah. That sounds, you know, easier than doing it myself. Yeah. For 80 bucks. I mean, it's really not too bad. And, um, yeah, I, I kept trying to get the pressure right. And I kept accidentally spraying Freon into my face and that's not a pleasant experience. So yeah, yeah. I I was just like, I'm, I'm kind of over this. I'm pretty sure I went and got uh, the car aligned earlier this week and I was in the brakes plus and I saw on their little, uh, price board that they have in there that uh, AC charge was 80 bucks plus Freon. So I think probably like a hundred bucks out the door to have it charged and not have to breathe in Freon anymore. It, it seems worth it. To yeah. Me. Oh, Hey, since we're talking breaks, we might as well, uh, you know, how help me do some diagnostics live on air or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been having a weird problem, and I feel like I know what it is, but I'm going to get y'all's opinion. Okay. Uh, okay. When I drive my Ford, the Econoline, uh, if it sits in traffic or idles for a long time, whatever, or if the day's just really hot out, and a handful of other circumstances, my brakes become much more firm. And be- bear in mind, these aren't boosted brakes, they're manual brakes. Um, but, like, my pedal is soft on at the start of a cool day, but as the temperature in the day gets hotter or once I drive it around for a little while and build up heat, the brakes get really firm up to and including if it's hot enough, I can tell that sometimes the front passenger side brake starts to drag because it's also front drum. Hmm. What's y'all's thoughts? I don't know. That's usually the opposite of what happens, right? Yeah. I was not expecting you to say they were going to get firmer. That makes uh, less sense to me. Than them I think I have water feet. in my lines. I that's where my mind was going initially, but I that seems odd that they would get firmer as it heats up. I mean, I guess that water is expanding, yeah. but I yeah, I mean, yeah, I would definitely like, start with have... a full flush, just as step number one. No matter what the issue is, a full yeah. brake fluid flush would be my number one go to. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking like, oh, well, why, it, this couldn't be water in the lines because I flushed the lines. But then I remembered that, like, I ended up avoiding flushing the line mm-hmm. by doing, like, some other, like, silly stuff. So, I, yeah, I, I think I just need to, like, bleed that line, especially because it's only on one side. Yeah. 
and I can tell it's on one side because if it does get hot enough when the pedal's really firm, when you first like apply the brakes, it'll pull to the right a little bit. But under no other circumstances, it pulls to the right. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like so water I, yeah. down in that line going. And I, I know that that's a thing, so I just. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely where I would start at the very least. I don't, I don't think you need any special fluid for drum brakes. I think you, if you get just any of the like modern, you know, modern brake fluid that's rated for high temperatures, it should be good. Yeah. You could probably put dot four in there and, and have a nice yeah. little upgrade. Technically. I, I, I think it's, I think it's dot three already in it. So I'm, I'm just going to keep with that. Cause like yeah. I've, 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 I actually thought I was cooking the the brake lines at one point, but I followed them through, and they're not close to the engine or exhaust. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I forget which it is. Uh, four or five dot uh, four or five brake fluid is one is incompatible with three, and one is compatible with everything. Hmm. And that's what I've got is the one that's compatible with everything, and it's supposed to be rated for high temperatures. Okay, I didn't know that there was cross compatibility with that, so that I would consider. Okay. Yeah, there's one, there's uh, silicone based, and there's like ethylene glycol or something like that, or some kind of uh, other chemical. I don't remember exactly. Okay, I'll look. At, I'll look into that because this is something I need to do. I dealt with it all winter because it was really mild when the engine was warmed up, and it was like forty degrees outside. Mm-hmm. But on an 85 degree day after I've been driving for a little while, I actually don't even need to push the brakes. If, if, if I'm going less than like five miles an hour, it'll stop on its own. Oh, okay. <laughs> Definitely not helping my bad uh, gas mileage situation. Yeah. yeah okay. Definitely. Yeah. I just, I just wanted a second opinion. Cause uh, <laughs> even, even a professional mechanic, when I told him what it was doing, it's just the, this guy I know, he was like, I don't know. It sounds like you got water in your brake line. Now this yeah, isn't that, the same van that you had a difficult time bleeding the brakes because it was like seized up or anything. Was it? Uh, yes, but I figured out uh, what to do and how to do it, so it shouldn't be a problem this time. Okay, cool. There's like a couple of things that I can take off, and it doesn't mess anything up, and then I can actually get to what I need to get to. Okay. Just for reference, uh, dot four. Is, com- is is compatible with dot three and dot five point one brake fluid. Uh, the only one that's not compatible is dot five, because it is silicone okay. based. Yeah. Oh no. It's glycol based. The others are silicone based. Excuse me. So yeah, dot three and four are compatible, and also dot five point one. If you can find that, which I've never seen dot five point one in my life before. So yeah, I think that's what that I got from. is five point one. Oh. Is that available? I had to like, order online. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that's not available like your standard auto parts store, is it? No, I think I, I order online and it came like from Germany or something. Gotcha. But I I guess it's DOT approved. So I, I hope that's good. Although we, we learned in the uh, um, episode on Unsafe at Any Speed that a lot of those standards are kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Um, so... Well, I think uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the stuff that Joe's written and how it relates to what we've been talking about. Cool. Sounds good.
And uh, we're going to go through some of the things that Joe has written on his Substack, and I'll have uh, links in the description for all of these. Uh, some of them might be behind a paywall, but it's uh, it's worth paying for. They're uh, well written and interesting. I guess uh, first off, we talked about. I, I guess this is the the first thing that caught my eye is an article from January of 2020 uh, called Nationalized Airlines. And uh, you you covered this one pretty well on the Turn Leftist podcast, and we'll have a link to that episode as well. But anything else you want to add on on this or sort of summarize uh, this article? Yeah, sure. Um, I have to say this is probably one of the uh, most widely popularly received articles I've ever written. Um, I really haven't heard a good argument against it. Everyone I kind of present this argument to seems to be in favor of it. Um, Make a long story short, uh, the gist of it is that we should nationalize the airlines because privately run airlines aren't that good, right? Like, you know, if even on a a standard flight, you're paying for water, paying $7 for peanuts. Like all of this exists because of the profit motive. That's why they, there's not enough leg room because they try and cramp as many people into a plane as they can. Air travel is, you know, a serious contributor to climate change, but it's also something that um, we need to have, right? People need to move around the country. And it's also one of the leading ways in which we ship goods. So it's not like we can kind of just get rid of it. Um, Instead, what we should really do is nationalize the airlines, eliminate the profit motive, and ensure that we are running them as environmentally friendly as possible. Air travel uh, constitutes a little over 2% of annual climate emissions. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. (laughs) And so instead of doing things like you know, airlines set up their routes for to maximize profit. So even if they're only going to move, I don't know, a 20% full plane from Colorado Springs to Denver, they're going to make a ton of money. So they're going to do that. And um, for people who aren't from Colorado, that is about a 40-minute drive, but you can actually get that flight any day out of Denver International Airport. So, you know, if we can nationalize the airlines, we can really put this into perspective with a uh, entire public transportation system that prioritizes uh, preservation of the environment, reduction of climate emissions, and also, you know, our ability, right? People need to move between Denver and Colorado Springs, but uh, that's something we can accomplish with a train or a bus or a car for a fraction of the emissions that um, a plane would take. The other reason... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I oh, I, I was just going to uh, sarcastically state, what about innovation? Like, what's what's the motive <laughs> for innovating in the airlines if it's owned by the state? Like, how are they going to figure out how to cram four people into the spot that one person should fill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I... Um, no matter what I write about, there's always someone who says, like, well, if there's no profit motive, there's no innovation. And like, I know you're being sarcastic. Well, it's, it's a running gag on this show, but normally it's normally it's oh, Connor's yeah. uh, joke, but he's not here, so I had to make it for him. <laughs> because yeah, there's 
I the, all that capitalist innovation is is bullshit. Like it's the capitalist innovation of NASA getting to the moon, being a state-run, you know, government or government agency, private or uh, publicly funded. Like for sure, yeah. I also like you know, as someone who used to work in the tech sector, like a lot of quote unquote capitalist innovation is to get talked. It gets talked about like, oh, Delta is going to build a better plane. And it's going to reduce climate emissions. Like that's how these like people who like capitalism talk about innovation. When in reality, the innovation they are looking for is like, okay, how can we cut labor costs by, you know, moving to a, our plants to a state with a lower minimum wage or hiring um, undocumented workers and paying them slave wages or stuff like that. Like that's where capitalist companies innovate. Really, like this idea that like they're making better products that will help us, the consumer, in my experience, isn't really true. Like companies just sort of innovate on the back end and they all provide the same product of, okay, I'll fly you from uh, Denver to New York. But what they're doing is just trying to innovate ways to get the cost down, which are usually like, okay, we'll, I don't know, emit more CO2 or bust our workers unions or whatever it is. And so I do feel like, like, you know, taking on that, that uh, pro-capitalist kind of play it as a get-out-of-jail-free card of like, well, innovation. And it's like, well, you know, show me the last thing that Delta, American Airlines, Southwest, or United Airlines innovated that, like, made our lives actually better. Chances are they're really just, I don't know, uh, skipping FAA regulations <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And I... um. You know, I've heard some people arguing against uh, this kind of thing, like uh, we shouldn't, the, we, the government or the, the, the people of the United States shouldn't be investing in like dirty technologies or emitting industries. Like, but I think there is a, a use there. Like, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people talking about um, nationalizing the oil industry so that it can transition to green energy. Um, and I think the same could be said for airlines, uh, you know, right now with private businesses running them, there's no incentive for them to emit less or transition to like high speed rail or anything like that. And, or, you know, take care of their workers during that sort of transition. Like even if there were regulations on private companies, you know, someone's getting laid off and, you know, it's not going to be a good time, but with, uh, nationalization, there's uh, a way to integrate that in with other efforts um, and and really take care of the environment and take care of the workers as well. I think. Right. For right. Sure. Because like, as it stands right now, because they are run for a profit, there's no incentive for like the airline industry to undercut itself. There's no incentive for the oil industry to undercut itself, even though, you know, these aren't necessarily profitable industries in and of themselves. They're only profitable through their own cornering of their market and, and lobbying of the government specifically with like the oil industry and, and suppression of alternate power sources, you know, eventually they're going to become completely unprofitable, but if they're run for a profit, they'll do anything and everything in their power to remain profitable. If they're nationalized and they're not run for a profit, then a, just transition to better, cleaner energy sources and better, cleaner travel is 
much more readily possible because, you know, we don't have this massive industry who's doing anything and everything in its power to keep being profitable, standing in the way. For sure. Yeah. Right. Like once it's, it's nationalized, it becomes part of this, you know, global project as opposed to, um, I think people are familiar with the story of like Elon Musk, basically like propping up his Hyperloop company, like as a way to destroy public transit. Like that's what airline companies are going to do. Right. So, um, even if nationalizing them just takes a, like the blocker or this, private company out of like um basically gets rid of them as an enemy of public transportation like i think that's a win on its own uh never mind the other other effects so what i'm curious about is so like you 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 know you mentioned the like incredibly short flights that might be between like what was it denver and colorado city uh colorado Colorado springs Springs, yeah yeah. um what I, i would be more curious about would like okay so like there is a genuine motive for an airline to run as efficiently as possible because the less fuel they use, the like cheaper that is, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to say it's a effective driving force, but it is real. But like, there's no motive for them to do that to across airlines. So like how many redundancies might be eliminated? So like, let's say you have, uh, five half full flights that are all going from like New York to Atlanta that got consolidated into, you know, two or three flights. Like, uh, w- do you have, did you have any information or, or research about like how much that might reduce both like in like, uh, emissions and like just general, like, uh, congestion across like airports and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, unfortunately, I don't. Um, that's something I uh, didn't look into. But I do know that, and this actually surprised me, um, because in writing this a long time ago, I, I researched and learned that like a lot of consumers are like pick an airline because of the rewards program, right? So like even if there's a cheaper 70% full flight on Southwest going the same time and destination. If I want my United Airlines miles points, I'm going to take United Airlines. And so that's like something that I know exists. I don't have numbers into the extent that it exists, but it's a hundred percent a very real problem. Uh, The other, the other problem that, you know, kind of echoes that is, and this blew my mind, but airline companies do this thing called ghost flights where they fly empty planes. Like they don't accept passengers because uh, years prior they bid on the gate slots. And so they want to keep the gate slots. And there's all these like weird regulations of like, okay, like you have to have like, you have, you have to place a bid for, I don't know, like 35 gate slots a day or something like that. And so Delta is like, okay, well, we're only going to have like 29, but we are going to pay for six so that we can get those 29s. And you can't just have them. You actually have to fly. So they just fly empty planes around in the sky, which, you know, is absurd and just hurts the environment so much and drives up costs for consumers. So like all that redundancy and the like for-profit motives of just, trying to get people onto a very limited amount of planes is very evidently not the best way we could do this uh, air travel system. 
Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I, it's almost like even off the top of my head, there's innumerable obvious problems with with privatized airlines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I'd say about this before we move on is we've really already covered the cost of nationalizing them. Um, <laughs> like, so between the airlines got bailed out after 9-11 mm-hmm. and more recently under COVID, the total amount of bailouts for that was $72.6 billion. When I wrote this article a couple of years ago, the market value of the four biggest airlines, that's Delta, American Airlines, Southwest, and United Airlines, comes out to about $77 billion. So we could have bought all four of these major airlines for with just $5 billion more than what we already gave them. Right. And I actually think a nationalization project like would probably go by like uh, the United States buying one airline first and then sort of gradually acquiring the other ones. But like, you know, it, I think we've all heard the the cliche of like, oh, how are you going to pay for that? Like when it comes to nationalizing the airlines, we already have and we're probably going to have to bail them out again because they've already collapsed twice this century. So um, <laughs> it's not like they're bulletproof at this point no but they so. were only collapsing because of once in a lifetime problems yeah right Two which is why it only happened twice <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it happened in the when you guys probably know this better than i do when was the the oil shortage in the united states uh, uh was that the 70s yeah, yeah the oil crisis yeah i don't have the numbers on that but they got another massive bailout around there and you know like like most companies they benefit a lot from the fact that the U.S. government stand, uh, subsidizes all oil prices. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if we factor that in, like these these airlines are just taking taxpayers. I, I think that you guys are misunderstanding. When they say once in a lifetime, what they're actually saying is they're actually trying to get our lifetimes down to about twenty to thirty years. <laughs> um, yeah, once in a lifetime is a goal, not to mitigate the uh, the the catastrophe, but the lifetime of the of the average consumer. Now, Joe, you talked about the the price tag to buy these airlines, but like, what if we didn't actually pay the investors' money? What if we just took them? I mean, is that an option? You know, or, uh... there is. Uh, one of the things I'm I'm doing right now is. Um, I'm writing a, a book that's kind of like, you know, my uh, my philosophy on how to democratize an economy. And part of that, I've been looking into the legal um, justification for eminent domain. And, you know, under the current American legal system, like there's a very good argument for us to be able to nationalize like any company. And, you know, we can also talk about like, fingers crossed in a post-revolution America, this becomes a lot easier. But under the current structure, the Supreme Court has ruled numerous times that, you know, uh, the, I believe it's the Fifth Amendment's uh, claim to, uh, what's the terminology they used? Um, Adequate compensation really means that you just have to pay a company uh, its market value to, to nationalize it. So, under both kind of the shitty system we have now and the hypothetical fingers crossed future system, I think we all we all are hoping for. You know, these things become a, a lot. I, I don't know how <laughs> if this is a, true because this is not something I've ever researched. But have you ever heard when Castro nationalized so much of like the uh, stuff in Cuba that he re, like 
the process that he did. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? A little bit. Yeah, uh, supposedly because everybody was using Cuba as like a tax haven and like underreporting like values and incomes and everything else. <laughs> um, what he did was he re- he uh, when he nationalized things, he would pay the company the value that they had claimed it was worth as like a tax dodge. <laughs> so all the all these companies that were trying to like you know use Cuba as a loophole like took a big hit on everything that got nationalized because it was way undervalued. And I think we should we should follow a path like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, yeah. Like, oh, you're like... actually losing money on this airplane for some reason. We're going to take it off of your hands for free. <laughs> we'll take like that. that hit yeah. for you. Yeah. It's like how uh, Apple, Amazon, like rarely pay uh, business taxes. It's like, oh, you you guys must be struggling. You know, we'll uh, we'll we'll take this negative asset for you. Yeah, no, you yeah, can thank Amazon. Amazon seems really important to the people, but you guys aren't making any money, so we we're just going to take that over for you. Like, that sounds like a lot of work for no profit. Yeah, <laughs> you don't even have to pay us to take it off your hands. We'll do it for free, zero dollars, because yeah. we're just so benevolent. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of nationalizing industries, uh, what about nationalizing the railroads? Uh, this is a article from December of last year. So right when that was a, a hot button issue with the, the pending railroad strike, or I think it, by that had, by that time it had been, uh, crushed by the most pro labor president in history, <laughs> Joe Biden, <laughs> Um, Unfortunately, nothing else bad (laughs) happened after that. Right. (laughs) FDR 2.0, Joe Biden, just the the guy who is always bragging about how much he uh, he he likes Amtrak and trains. Um, Yeah, I wrote this. um, I was on the picket line with the the workers. Denver is kind of like a a rail hub for the country. So there's a big, um, a big population of railroad workers here and you know, one of the things there's, there's kind of two sides to, to my argument on this is one, you know, very much like the airlines, there's no reason that something that really is a public good, um, should be in for-profit hands. Like they, no one's building new tracks. There's four major rail carriers. They don't compete and drive down, uh, prices as free market theory would have us believe they basically just function as a cartel. And much like I said about, you know, airlines innovate by crushing labor costs. That's how um, railroads are driving up their profits. You know, I listened to the the workers talk about how one of their biggest concerns was, and this did not get covered a lot by the, by the media, but um, the companies were doubling the train size. So the trains would go from three miles long to six miles long, because obviously if, the companies can move more on one train with fewer labor costs than they make more profit. And the workers were describing how they have one guy on a six mile long train and all of a sudden they get some alert that something is going wrong. So they have to stop the train, go back and walk like six miles to find the problem, like try and work on it. And it, it was just very clear that like a for-profit model does not, work for this right these are these railroads deliver over 30 percent of our goods like we should basically we're, we're all paying extra to boost the profits of warren buffett who owns i believe uh union pacific if i'm 
uh, correct. But yeah, it's uh, very much like the, oh, sorry, he owns uh, BNSF, uh, which is one of the largest uh, rail carriers. Um, I went on intervention and did an episode with them where we just talked about the rail strike of eight, the 1870s. And funny enough that you talk about them doubling the length of trains and everything. That was one of one of the causes of the great rail strike in the 1870s was almost identical. It's been scaled up uh, over the last, you know, 150 years. But it, it it was they were running larger trains with less crew. And the crew was saying not only is this hurting jobs for uh, like our our friends, uh, you're making it unsafe. And it caused one of the one of the more intense uh, strikes in American history, and yet we keep repeating the same mistakes. Like we, we've known for 150 years that like the tactics that the rail barons are using are unsafe, and and we they just keep doing it. And yeah, I, I, I nationalize that shit because obviously, like the wealthy cannot be. Like, uh, am I the only one here who who knows like roughly how many derailments there are per year in America? I think we talked about it before. It's it up, upwards of like over a thousand. It, somewhere it's, it's around seventeen hundred a year. Yeah. Wow. It's like seventeen hundred and three or something like that. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, that was like one of the things when I remember when that East Palestine derailment happened and. <laughs> Everyone was like defending Buttigieg, all like the lib types, by being like, "Oh no, there's always a thousand derailments." <laughs> and it was like, "Okay, but to- yo, that's not a good." <laughs> to be to clear, say. there haven't always been over a thousand derailments a year, but since the '90s, there have been an uh, yeah, I, I don't know, like by year, but an average over I think the last twenty-five or thirty years, it's it's around seventeen hundred. So there was a point in time where that was less true. And you know what? Because because it changed sometime in the early to mid '90s, I'm just going to assume that it was because of the fall of the Soviet Union. That's a good guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hey, <laughs> until we have a better answer, <laughs> I'm willing to yeah blame blame that on uh, most of our problems on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know people forget that not only did the Soviet Union have an effect within its own borders, but it really offered an example to, um, you know, workers and unions and uh, governments around the world, like, hey, this is what we can do. Uh, and, and like all these um, governments were like, we, we want to avoid a, uh, a communist revolution in our country. So we're going to give concessions to the workers. And that's how you got uh, social democracies in Europe and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, like even the, in the America, deal. like you had to, you had to, like, I was joking when I said that, but there, there's, there's truth in what you're saying. Like well, a lot of, of truth is, is because there was an actual alternative that existed on this planet. Mm-hmm. It was forcing a lot of, uh, our country to be like, well, okay, maybe, maybe you guys should have like, you can have a union just, right. Just because just to show us, show you how much we appreciate you, you can have your little union. And uh... yeah, that's one of the things that um, I find has really been like rewritten about the New Deal is that it was like this, like, uh, you know, it, it often gets talked about like 
a quasi American social democracy. And like, I guess that's true to a point, but like looking into the history, it's really like FDR's goal. And, you know, he said this was to like save capitalism and the fear of like a American workers revolution coming out of the great depression was like very real and very, um, very present to the point where like, you know, they felt they had to do things like establish social security and show workers that like, okay, you know, it's not just going to be us like crapping all over you for the rest of your lives. But yeah, it's, I think you're actually very right about the fact that, you know, if this alternative exists, um, it forces people to make concessions. Um, yeah. Yeah. And one thing I appreciate about this uh, article or, or I don't know, do you call it like an article or an op-ed or what, what is your, or a column or, I don't know what the terminology. I call them articles. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I never know what the Substack keeps like trying to get me to call them like call it a Substack. You know, like uh, oh, okay, like, you know how podcast is from like Apple, like, right? Right, like a an iPodcast. Like I think they're trying to do the same thing, but I, I don't. That feels silly to me. So I just call them articles. <laughs> that, yeah, fair enough. Um, but uh, I mean, you sort of talked about a, a common like talking point that came out of sort of mainstream media and was repeated to me by, you know, well-meaning liberals that uh, they were framing it as the railroad unions were threatening to grind the economy to a halt and, you know, stop um, goods getting to market by, you know, Christmas time. Whereas really it's, it was the management of these railroads, the owners, um, they were the ones that were threatening this shutdown really by refusing to negotiate with the, the unions and a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people yeah. forget that and they'll just uh, believe what, you know, CNN or whatever is saying. For sure. Yeah. The um, one of the biggest demands was, you know, all the workers that I talked to said like, you know, our pay is not bad. Like compared to the average worker, you know, they, they felt like, it was a traditionally, you know, I'm only speaking from um, the groups I interacted with, but um, overwhelmingly male uh, for the workers. And, you know, they talked about like, you know, I make enough so that my family can live a decent life. The main problem was I don't get to partake in that life because I have no sick days. I am on call 24-7. We get like three holidays a year floating. I've missed birthdays, birth of children, like stuff like that. There's no vacation time, no no sick time like they all talked about how like they all had to work with covid like coughing like deadly sick and part of the reason like nationalization helps with that stuff is you know public sector unions are much stronger than private sector unions for i think obvious reasons you know talk to any teacher or anyone like that you know there's going to be issues with their employment um these unions are constantly fighting for higher wages, better, uh, better healthcare, stuff like that. That's all true. But generally, they are stronger in this country than private sector unions. So basically, nationalizing will not only eliminate this profit motive and make all your goods cheaper, but will help out the workers a lot. Just because, as we know, the last data I saw was about 10%, 10% of the private sector is unionized compared to about 33% of the public sector. Um, and so, you know, 
teachers get good benefits. I know that um, at least here in Denver, pay is an issue for them, but it's not like they have Warren Buffett saying like, oh no, you don't have sick days, so you're going to have to work through COVID. So the the stuff about trying to blame the union members as if like these railroad workers are being greedy for, you know, wanting two sick days a year is, it just put me up a tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a, a very common, um, I guess, right-wing media talking point. Uh, whenever there's a labor dispute, they try to, and, and I guess I'm including, you know, CNN or any other, you know, capitalist owned media out there. Uh, as far as, you know, being right wing, um, in my view, uh, but, uh, they're always trying to frame it as, you know, these are, um, greedy, entitled, selfish workers that don't deserve all these, uh, all of what they're asking for as, uh, you know, demands in the negotiation. And, you know, you're saying that now with the writer's strike that's going on, at least at time of recording, you know, these workers that have been, put in like very financially precarious situations by the, the rise of, you know, like streaming services like Netflix and whatnot and, you know, various like corporate mergers and all that. Uh, they're really having to fight just to make a decent living and not be, um, you know, destitute. Um, and, you know, I'm sure living in LA is, is no big, uh, picnic as far as being an affordable place to live. Um, but, uh, I, I guess I've gone a little bit further afield than what we were talking about with railroads, but I, I think there are some parallels there. Uh, just the way that the media depicts unions uh, nowadays. For sure. Yeah. And I, um, I'd also like, you know, uh, as a heads up to anyone who isn't aware on July 31st, the UPS uh, Teamsters contract. So the contract between the UPS workers and UPS, the company will expire. Um, and it's basically going to be another round of what we saw um, from the railroad. They're like uh, UPS is already making, you know, their workers trying to depict them as looking greedy or like they're asking for too much. Um, and so come late July, early August, we're all going to be hearing this again about like, Oh, the reason, uh, little Timmy didn't get his August 4th uh, birthday present is because the greedy UPS driver like wants to, uh, I don't know, <laughs> make more than minimum wage. <laughs> like, so everyone brace yourselves because this is coming again. Yeah. I've, I heard a little bit about that strike and it's, it's been surprising to me that like I, I found it on some like not especially uh, popular source and it was really surprised that it was not, something that was getting more airtime on any other medium that I've, I've come across. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Cause like, you know, I totally agree that CNN, uh, like, you know, quote unquote, normie news sources, like, you know, they're corporations. So they have a bias towards capitalist interest, right? Like that's objectively right wing. They don't cover it until it's a sensation. Right. So they probably won't start covering it until, uh, you know, August 1st when UPS goes on strike and then they're going to be like, oh, these UPS drivers are uh, stealing from your children as opposed to like covering it now and being like, okay, UPS is negotiating in bad faith, like giving a full story. Um, so that's something that I think we're all going to have to um, not only get used to, but, you know, kind of educate ourselves and our, our friends and family on 
uh, sort of the media literacy, right? Of like, okay, these people are um, trying to push in, in a narrative and what can we actually suss out when CNN blames uh, the guy who drops off your, your mail for, for, I don't know, not wanting to sacrifice his livelihood for corporate profits. Yeah. And um, isn't one of the guys on Minion Death Cult a uh, UPS driver? Yeah. I say, yeah. So uh, I guess maybe check out that podcast. They'll probably be talking about the negotiations mm-hmm. and or possible strike and all the uh, right wing response to that. <laughs> it, it's it's going to be so gross. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be bad. It's going to be really mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to another um, more recent article uh, from April of this year, uh, we need to outlaw private jets. And I saw this headline. I'm like, yes, yes. Uh, but then the more I read, I'm like, okay, there's some, you know, real reasons other than just um, being antagonistic towards uh, rich douchebags uh, that this is something that we need to do. Uh, you actually ran the numbers as far as like emissions and uh, just wastefulness of resources in general that uh, I think really back up, you know, no one needs to own a jet themselves for their own personal use. For sure. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, uh, get ahead of this and be like, I think private jets are a secondary problem caused by the fact that we have billionaires, millionaires, which, you know, um, stem from a whole other source of capitalist issues that I think, you know, moving towards a more socialist system would, would remedy on its own. But even if we put that aside for a second and just look at our, our current society as it is, um, outlawing private jets is, a, is something we really need to do. Um, very similar to my thought on why we need to nationalize airlines, like planes are a massive emitter of CO2. Um, and that gets even more true when they are moving one person or two people or whoever, you know, Elon Musk decides to invite uh, with him on his private jet, a very small amount of people. Let's see here, looking into my numbers. So I know it's always fun to dunk on Elon Musk. I use him as an example. <laughs> oh, we do it all in the this. time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very easy. <laughs> so I think that's why people do it a yeah. lot. Here on Com- the Cars and I- Comrades, we love low-hanging fruit. yeah all you really have to do is like uh read a headline for whatever he did that day yeah right (laughs) uh retweet the picture of him with uh gislaine maxwell and (laughs) yeah you uh you can uh get enough get enough uh satisfaction out of that but the reason i'm i'm focusing on elon in this article is because um the now defunct elon jet twitter account which he made a big fuss over when he bought twitter um, tracked his info. So we kind of have all of his data of when he flew. I think it's probably, you know, a, a typical story of like a billionaire's private jet. Um, his Elon's jet flew 134 times in 2022, uh, producing over 1800 tons of CO2. That's more than 391 cars. This is, he's flying a lot. His most common uh, destinations were LA, Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas, and Brownsville, Texas. Um, of course, LA has a huge 
airport, LAX. Um, so there's no reason why anyone needs like private flights there. It's not like he's, you know, going to some remote destination that can only get to through private jet. And then the other two are um, Austin and Brownsville are a five hour car drive apart. So we could easily, you know, I don't know, maybe Elon could try driving one of his cars if a Tesla can make it that far, or we should have public transportation. Yeah. Let's see. There are approximately over 23,000 uh, private jets in existence. 62% of them operate in the US, um, which I don't think is a surprise considering our uh, ruthless capitalist system that steals wealth from workers and gives it to owners. This basically, you know, puts out um, over 26,337,000 metric tons of CO2 every year. Uh, which is the equivalent of all the CO2 put out by 5.75 million cars. Um, and so when you put it in that term, right, like we're putting out 5.75 million cars worth of CO2 every year for what? So like people can fly to Jeffrey Epstein's private island or, you know, Elon doesn't have to uh, feel like a, a normal person by flying into LA, like society is not benefiting anything from these people having the ability to fly alone. If anything, I think it's arguably getting worse because even putting aside the finances, like it separates the classes and makes these people think that they're gods. There's really no benefit to it. And so once you kind of look at it from a numbers perspective, I have yet to hear a good justification for why people should be allowed to own private jets. I can think of one um, good one, but we would have to edit out everything I said to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> I'll just say that when it's a private flight, you know very specifically the type of person on it. So it really doesn't matter what happens. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm with you and not want to say much more because I don't want to make uh, your editor's uh, job too difficult. But um... I'm just refraining <laughs> from making terroristic threats. <laughs> yeah, about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, good. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yes. you shouldn't <laughs> make those kind of threats. They're bad. I would never make that sort of threat. I'm not advocating it right now, even if it is a good idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah we're definitely not saying that uh of course yeah no, um definitely. i also wanted to note like since our last recording uh elon musk has said a lot of racist stuff and anti-semitic stuff what wait what whoa yeah um <laughs> i guess he was angry at george soros for pulling his investment from tesla and uh oh no yeah <laughs> said a lot of things about like you know who who actually controls the world and uh yeah i i won't repeat everything he said but uh i i i'm i can link it in the show notes if you really want to read some terrible things but uh i'm sure i'll hear about it yeah yeah it's like in uh like i don't know 10 years ago everyone thought elon musk was our generation's henry ford because he was gonna yeah. Uh, change cars and now we all think he's our generation's henry ford because he just rants about how evil jews are um <laughs> hey he's our generation's henry ford no matter which way you look at it yeah one, one of these days we'll have to do an episode about henry ford it might be like a multi-part series on how evil he was but yeah 
the fact that that guy gets credit for like instituting the five day work week is like one of the things that is just so, I don't know. Um, it just really grants my gears yeah. because it, like, you know, leave it to the public education system to take like a century long mass movement of workers to, to fight for this. And then they're just like, Oh no, it was actually like the most racist capitalist you, you could ever imagine who gets credit for it. <laughs> yeah. What's like the adjective form of bootlicker? Like <laughs> that's the attitude that people have towards yeah. him. <laughs> well, let's see. I had uh, one more article that you wrote um, on May 2nd of 2023 or published, I should say on that day, are Tesla's and electric cars are really better for the environment. And I had seen some people uh, running the numbers on this before. Um, most notably uh, uh, Jason from the channel engineering explained on YouTube. And I, I think it is worth looking into not, not just looking at the car itself, but how they're used, which is what you did. Um, and it turns out that, you know, people that own a Tesla often own another internal combustion car. So they're not really replacing a, uh, you know, CO2 emitting car with a zero emission car there. They're adding you need on. something else to be able to drive around when your other car is on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm saying this is something he knows. <laughs> oh, background for Joe. I, my vehicles have been on fire a few times during. Oh God! During the time that we've been doing this show, I'm not a car guy, but as I understand it, they're uh, they're they're almost never supposed to actively be on fire. Yeah. So yeah, you're I, gonna want to get that looked at. <laughs> yeah, generally, you want to keep the fire inside the cylinders near the pistons and not inside the cab near my hands ah yes yes technical details i I get mixed up sometimes (laughs) (laughs) they're called internal combustion for a reason and should never be external combustion (laughs) (laughs) a good rule of thumb yeah yeah um to to jump off what, what brian was saying i'm i'm certainly not the first person to look into this um but i did feel that you know people were were kind of taking a um a only getting half the picture for like, you know, how electric vehicles exist in our society. The one thing that I really want emphasize, and that I think is pretty clear after you read this article is that we can't rely on capitalist systems to solve the issues that capitalism caused. Right. Um, I, many other people have crunched the numbers. I, I cited another reporter from CNET in my article who Come, who gets to the equa- like the conclusion that all things being equal, a Tesla spends about two thirds the emissions of a normal car. When you factor in the estimated emissions caused by the battery production of a Tesla, this gets a carbon break even use of about um, three years, which means you have to drive a Tesla Model 9 for about three years for it to be better for the environment than an internal combustion engine car. One thing I'll say about that is we don't actually know how much CO2 is produced by the creation of a Tesla battery, just because Tesla does not release those numbers. So this is a guess. But where I find other um, analysis have fallen short is that they treat Tesla use, electric vehicle use as similar to like internal combustion engine cars. And that's, when you look at the data, that's not really how they turn out. 
according to the Energy Institute at, ha at Haas, 90% of U.S. households with an electric vehicle also have some other form of car, and 66% of households with an electric vehicle drive a non-electric vehicle more. Um, so when we look at the data, what we're really seeing is like Teslas have replaced sort of like the old guy midlife crisis, I'm going to buy a Corvette. Um, <laughs> they're very common in three vehicle and four vehicle households. 36% of American households with an electric vehicle have more cars than drivers. Um, and um, so you're on the wrong like, show to complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, I, I totally like get like car collecting, but like what we're seeing here is like, you know, as someone who used to work in tech and, um, spent a lot of time in Southern California on business trips, like basically like tech CEOs are buying a third and fourth Tesla, Tesla, um, instead of their, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe they bought a Corvette or a Ferrari or something like that. And so when we look at it from that, it's not like, you know, the more Tesla sales equals better for the environment. We're kind of just replacing luxury cars with uh, slightly less carbon polluting luxury cars, which I guess is good. But at the end of the day, if we actually want to stop climate change and solve um, and save our planet, like we're going to have to really approach transportation in a different way. And I don't want people to think that like, you know, we can just rely on Tesla or like Ford produces electric vehicles, um, any of these for-profit companies to like save us from the problem that they caused, which, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but yeah, we, um, we are, just, are, are big on just car free cities. Like, yeah. Yeah. Cars, yeah. cars have a place in the world and it's on a track where you're having fun, <laughs> not worried about breaking down on your way to work or, or, you know, crushing traffic for three hours a day because you live six miles from your job. Like, um, no, we're for sure. Yeah. Mostly cars just need to be done away with a, a, an actual solid public transportation infrastructure would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cars as a hobby rather than cars as a means of mass transit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly, you know, I got a lot of like reply guys coming after me for this article being like, you know, I'm sure you guys get this like, Oh, you're jealous of Elon and stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not trying to like, I know a ton of people. I have friends who own electric vehicles and stuff like that. I'm not trying to like knock anyone like that. I'm just, you know, when you look at this, like Tesla electric vehicles, they're really great marketing tools. That's their real benefit to the companies. Um, but you know, if we, want to be serious about saving our planet we're like everything else we've talked about on this episode we're going to have to rethink how we approach transportation Actually, and i, I kind of like think that. you nailed it in regards to like talking about tesla if you want to be serious about saving our planet yeah like <laughs> any any mm -hmm. casual research will tell you that like that's never been tesla's genuine because like their, their whole um i uh, got I'm, I'm escaping forgetting some details but maybe you can fill in the, the blanks or or any of us can, but uh, yeah, te Tesla's uh, the only way that they're really like reducing any sort of carbon fo footprint, quote unquote, is is selling carbon credit. Like, no, I'm sorry, I, I got it backwards. Like, because of the way they're selling carbon credits, they're basically like sort of negating their their own thing. Like, they're yeah. selling credits that are, are 
theoretical. So they're actually allowing other places to produce more pollution while they are basically just still producing pollution. Yeah, that's very true. It was either 2021 or 2022 was the first year that more of Tesla's revenue came from selling cars than from selling carbon credits. Yep. So since uh, I believe the company was founded in the early 2000s, Side note, it was not founded by Elon Musk. He (laughs) bought it and then sued the original founders into letting himself call himself the founder. But I digress. Actually, can can you name a single business owned by Elon Musk that was started by Elon Musk? The only thing I found is he started X.com, which like got acquired by PayPal in its early days. But besides that, I don't know of a single one. Uh, um, no, you, you you nailed it. He he wasn't the founder of anything. He he started X.com. To my knowledge, he wasn't doing very well with it, and PayPal acquired it, and he somehow managed to move up the ranks doing that. <laughs> I think he's he's a good like marketer, brander, very similar to Trump, right? But I, I think that's kind of where the, the genius stops, in my opinion. Um but yeah, sorry for pulling us off, but yeah, for like 20 years, this company that claimed to be you know, saving the environment was really just selling their carbon credits so that, you know, they, their cars produce less uh, emissions, but Ford, uh, Toyota, whoever got to produce more. So, um, you know, surprise, surprise, the companies that say they care about solving uh, climate change uh, actually don't. They really just care about their bottom line. Yeah. And I, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but like, it does come down to like the liberal attitude of, um, you know, individual choices to um, mitigate systemic problems. And that doesn't really apply. That, that this only gets you so far with climate change. Like, you know, we saw with, um, you know, uh, COVID lockdowns, like people were commuting far, far less. And that barely put a dent in emissions, you know, overall. So like it, I mean, it did on the local level. Yeah, but like, yeah, it, it didn't reduce like global emissions. Yeah, but I guess like if you are uh, someone shopping for a car and you want something environmentally friendly, you know, it's it. I mean, it's not a bad thing to get um, an electric car or a hybrid car. Um, I have seen some people that that ran the numbers and said, you know, especially if you are in a state where a majority of your electricity comes from coal, which is a lot of states, it might be better to get like a plug-in hybrid that, you know, you can use either gasoline or electric rather than either pure EV or pure um, internal combustion. Um, And then, you know, with that, you're also getting a smaller battery pack than a full EV. You know, you don't have to deal with all the issues regarding uh, lithium mining or production of the batteries or that sort of thing. For sure. Yeah. And like, I, um, I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to discourage anyone from getting in an electric vehicle yeah. or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, if I had the option, I'd, I'd probably get one. I'm, I'd actually like to see what the, like, you know, break even is on gas costs and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think you nailed it. It's just, it's this liberal mindset that we can, uh, capitalism away or we can, consume away the problems caused by our rampant consumerism. Yeah. And I just, I just fundamentally disagree with that on every level. And I think we need to, you know, be honest about the effect of these cars and 
you know, even if everyone in America started driving a Tesla and our um, car emissions went from uh, fell by a third, like that's that's still 66% of the emissions. So like, I don't know, maybe we bought ourselves another 30 years or something. But then you actually have to start factoring in like how much emissions does a burn ward produce? (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's like things aren't going to change unless we change the system. Right. Right. Like that's kind of the, the leftist mindset, I think. And, um, I've just seen too many people get really hyped about, uh, electric vehicles when, um, you know, they're kind of a shiny gloss on on the on the things that are causing our problems. In my opinion, uh, the expression I would use is "lipstick on a pig." <laughs> Very well said. Yes. <laughs> so I think we'll wrap up in a few minutes here, but um, I guess as a last question, Joe, uh, do you have anything else that you that we missed, maybe, or um, I guess also if you wanted to answer the prompt from a previous episode of ours uh is there anything that you would do if you were the secretary of transportation in the u.s oh that's a good question yeah i was when i was listening to your episode i was like running through like oh what would i do and then you guys all like said exactly what i was thinking about so i don't have too much to add there let's see the i like i i i kick myself every time every time I have to travel somewhere and I don't have the option of high speed rail, right? Like I am looking to go to Chicago in the summer to, to visit a friend and I looked at Amtrak and I would way rather take a train than get on a plane. I think it's just more relaxing. Um, that would be a huge priority for me. And I also think people would appreciate that just cause you know, like, as we talked about, like air travel in this country is just so unpleasant that, um, to be able to get on a train, like fall asleep and wake up two hours from now in Chicago would be my absolute dream. Um, so it's definitely for a selfish reason because <laughs> I was looking at plane tickets the other night. But um, yeah, that would that would definitely be something I would uh, prioritize if I were um, Secretary of Transportation. Um, and you know, making sure that chemical trains aren't <laughs> spilling into uh, residential neighborhoods would probably be pretty. <laughs> pretty pretty high up there <laughs> yeah but definitely. who am i i'm no pete Buttigieg. judge <laughs> <laughs> well hey i don't live far from there and i haven't gotten sick yet so it must be fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah keyword yet yet yeah right i don't even live like that close i think it's like 40 50 miles away well i mean i don't I live, you know, quite far from Canada, but yesterday we had uh, smoke blowing in from Canadian wildfires that cover the whole Denver area. So that was... Oh, no shit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Led to the worst oh. air quality in the country and the third worst air quality in the entire world. Yeah. Fun stuff. It was bad. What is going on in Canada right now? Nothing good. Yeah. That's been true for like 15 years. Longer if... I don't know. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess as we wrap up here, uh, Joe, is there anything that you want to plug other than your Substack? Yeah, I'll uh, say one more time. Uh, my Substack, I actually don't know if I said the name. Uh, yeah, it's uh, joerote.com. Uh, That's J-O-E-W-R-O-T-E.com. Um, if you enjoyed any of the stuff you heard about today or that um, 
y'all talk about um, on a weekly basis, um, come check it out. I've got some some free content, some paid content, um, and then you can come follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm just J-O-E-M-A-Y-A-L-L. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. This was a blast. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Sorry, for I don't on. know more about cars. Yeah. <laughs> hey, buy a car that you can barely keep running, and you'll have a place on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that you had to say is is stuff that on or off air we like love to just harp on. God, I want good to know. Real. Like, no, no joke. God, I look at the maps in China, and I just fucking die inside. Yeah. 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 Well, if uh, if we got nothing else uh, to talk about right now, I will say, um, you know, follow us on social media as well. It's Cars and Comrades at most things. Uh, you can send us an email, carsandcomrades at gmail.com. If you want to be a guest on the show, if you have something to say. And then uh, anything else I'm forgetting, guys? I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so- yeah. Check out Joe's stuff and uh, we'll be back with more uh, anti-capitalist car content in the future. All right. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Of course. Yeah. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Capitalism works if it works at all because it always has socialism to bail it out and, and to subsidize it. Ask any race, any real race. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. In the 1980s, 50 corporations controlled most news media in America. By 1992, that number shrunk to two dozen. And today, only six corporations control 90% of everything Americans see, hear, and read. The money spent on the Iraq war alone, which killed one million people, 5% of Iraq's entire population, and planted the seeds for ISIS to flourish, could have covered all global investments to halt climate change trends.